get our Bibles out this morning as the children are filtering their way out. We're in Philippians. We made it to chapter 3. I've been going through the entire book, looking at the Apostle Paul. We know he's in chains. He's under house arrest. He's lost his liberty, but somehow he's bubbling over with joy. Philippians is this joyful epistle that he pours out, his love for the church and for particularly the Philippian people there. Um, Just an amazing uh, journey, the Apostle Paul's life. What a great example to us, teaching us how to maintain our joy no matter what's going on in life. How many people have ever heard about, seen pictures of, or had had a problem? Amen. (laughs) Right? Life is never perfect. Even when there's great stuff going on, there's usually tough stuff to deal with. I heard a preacher one time liken life onto a railroad track. One, one rail of the track is good, blessing, peace, exciting stuff, and the other rail is challenges, problems, sickness, all that stuff. You say, well, w- when do you get to just ride on the one rail? You don't. It goes like that, that we deal with these things. And the Apostle Paul didn't say, when everything's going perfect in my life, then I'll have joy. No. He's like, even under house arrest, even being paraded around by the Romans in chains, I'm going to have the joy of the Lord. He wanted to teach us how to do that. In chapter 3 here, he continues with his journey. Uh, He's going to strengthen the Philippian church with his teaching. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, but let's thank God for the word. Father, we thank you this morning for this treasure. We have 66 books, the word of God. Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, the word would come alive to us today, that through worship we've prepared ourselves to have good ground in our hearts, that you've opened us up and plowed up that fallow ground, Lord God. So, Father, plant the seeds of truth and the principles of righteousness and the things we need to apply to our daily living. God, put those in us this morning by the hearing of the word, that we wouldn't be hearers only, but we'd be doers in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is of the law, found blameless. Verse 7, for whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as mere rubbish. The King James says dung so that I might gain Christ. Powerful words from the Apostle Paul coming to this place of uh, attacking those 
who would put confidence in the flesh and attacking the flesh in a sense where people could see that that's going to be a waste of time for me to do. There's a better way. We start off here. Remember, he's in chains, but he's full of joy. He's separated from the churches, yet he's writing to the Philippians. And he starts off in verse one of chapter three with the attitude of a concerned parent. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, or you could say my sons and daughters in the Lord, uh, I write this to you again, and it's no trouble for me if it safeguards you. Listen, when you're a parent, you realize right away you would do things for your children that you wouldn't do for anyone else. And I mean, it's just amazing. And it happens the instant that the child comes out and you hold it and you're like, wow. And everything changes. And I've seen mothers, man, what mothers do for us is unequaled. Mothers, you know, that kids got something in their nose, they're pulling it out, they're wiping their face, they're licking their fingers. Mothers changing diapers that, I mean, the, you know, the, the dads are just like, you know, your mom, that love. And, and, and you see parents, fathers will do things for their children too. Part with time, work three jobs, pay for things, give money, lay their very lives down. And you, you got to understand as a parent, you know, we have this love and affection for our children. And we see it in the apostle Paul here. Because in his very spiritual sense, these were his spiritual children. He led them to Christ. He gave them the gospel. He's taught them. He's hand-fed them the word. He's given them bottles when they've needed milk. And he loves them with, with, the, with the love of a parent. A parent will instinctively and reflexively do things for their children without hesitation. And that's what we see here in verse 1 of chapter 3. My brothers and sisters, my sons and my daughters, you know, to write the same things again is no trouble for me if it safeguards you. What's Paul saying? Yeah, I've taught you this stuff before, but I'll teach it to you again. Yeah, I know you've heard this before, but I want to make sure you get it. So he's saying to, to repeat this, to reiterate this, it's no problem for me. Now think about that for a second. How many times with your own children have, you know, you said things or maybe grown up, you said, how many times have I told you? Come on, some people are getting flashbacks right now. How many times did I tell you to clean up your room? How many times did I tell you to set your alarm? How many times did I tell you? And parents get, I mean, I understand it. Parents get at the end of the rope with us. And they're like, man, you just, this is the last time I'm going to tell you. Has anyone heard that before? I have to schedule a counseling appointment for myself at this point. Because it's like parents do that stuff. And, you know, parents will even say, I'm not going to tell you again. <laughs> and Paul on the other side of the coin is saying, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. I'll repeat it again. I'll teach you again. You know, it's no problem for me. That's how much I love you. That's how much patience I have with you. That's how much, you know, reflexively I'm going to do this because why? He says it'll safeguard you. He knows they've got to get it because he's not going to be with them forever and maybe not even for much longer. We know the trajectory of the course he's on will end in his martyrdom at the hands of the Romans. He knows I'm not going to be here. So now he's got all these people, all these spiritual children, all these churches that he loves, and he's repeating everything he can to get it in them because he knows they've got to get it. It's no trouble for me to repeat it because it will safeguard you. Before we move on, look how much fun we've had in verse 1 so far. I mean, 
Before we move on, though, I got to say one more thing. Repetition, when it comes to doctrine and principles for Christian living, is very, 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 see what I did there? Very, very necessary. Repetition. That, you know, people say, well, you, you preached on this before. If you look at my Bible here through Philippians, I've used this Bible to preach through Philippians before. It's underlined, it's highlighted, it's color-coded, it's torn apart. You've preached on this before. Why do we got to hear it again? Because repetition is very important. I've had people come to me and say, you preached on that before. Why do we have to? Are you living it? Do you get it? Is it applied to your life? Let's examine you. Because I don't know about you, but I don't learn anything the first time. Usually I'm just in shock the first time, and my head's spinning, and I get, you know, 30% of it. But repetition's important. Those people who have the mentality where I've heard this before, or I've read this before, or you taught this before, they are dooming themselves to staying immature, and they are making themselves more easily deceived by the enemy. Amen. We've got to hear it and hear it again and get it again and study it again and swallow it again until we get it, till we live it. <laughs> because if we're just hearers and we're not doers, we're easy mark for the enemy. So Paul says, no problem for me to reiterate this stuff. It'll safeguard you. And, and don't have that mentality where we've heard all this before. Look, I've been preaching since I'm 14. I've preached through, through the Bible in a lot of ways. I'm trying to find spots I haven't preached through. So if I can redo it, we can all redo it together as the Lord leads us. So verse 2, he begins to shift gears here. He tells them, you know, how much he loves them, wants to safeguard them. He's reiterating some things here. But in verse 2, he really gives us, you know, three, three points to look at. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the first of the what? The, 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 those who are the false circumcision. We're going to dig into that just a little bit there today. But he gives them three bewares. Now, when's the last time you walked up to someone and said, beware? Never. You know, somebody comes up to you and goes, beware. Call security. Okay, they ain't right. Because we don't say that. But here's Paul telling us to beware of three things. And he says it in such a way that it should get our attention as if someone was telling us, beware. You know, beware means to watch out, to guard yourself, to, to protect something. Beware. It's hands up, chin down. It, it's like, get your guard up. I see so many people, you, you ever watch, this generation posts everything. They post their, you know, their schoolyard fights and their brawls and stuff. And you got two people, they're pushing each other with their chest. You ever see this? Come on, you look at the internet all day. Don't look at me like I'm making stuff up. They're, they're pushing each other. They're going like this. And their hands are down around their waist. I'm like, you're right hook away from nap time, son. Get your hands up. Get your chin down and guard yourself. Beware. Meatheads. You're going to be a tough guy. Learn how to fight. If you're going to be a Christian, learn how to protect what's valuable in your life. Learn to beware. Learn to get your guard up. <laughs> and here's Paul telling us, you know, protect against this beware protect yourself guard yourself of what three things number one he says beware of dogs now you might think i i love dogs why don't we beware of cats they're just intrinsically evil but he's not talking about rough rough dogs 
He's talking about spiritual dogs. And if we want to know the implications of a spiritual dog, we've got to jump back into the Old Testament and look at what Isaiah said about uh, spiritual dogs. Now, Isaiah in chapter 56 of his own book is, is saying here, these are what spiritual dogs look like. And he's talking about the leadership that was in place over Israel at that time. Listen to this. It is sobering. Isaiah 56, 10 through 11. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are never satisfied. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one his unjust gain without exception. Ouch. What an indictment against the spiritual leadership that was in place over Israel at that time. God help us if our generation turns into that, if we're not there already. But he's saying spiritual dogs, they're blind, they're lazy, they're greedy. They, they just want to eat. They just want to lay around. They don't know anything. They don't care, you know, to watch. I mean, think about it. A watchman is someone who has to look, who keeps watch through the night to make sure that the enemy's not coming. And the watchmen are categorically blind. He's saying beware of dogs. Beware of fake leadership. Beware of those who would corral you, who would try and fleece you, who would try and lord over you. Watch out for the dogs. They are definitely those who would be false leadership or or false prophets. And the the preaching uh, of what their lives speak is contradictory to the gospel. Always measure a person's message against the word, against the gospel. You know, we wouldn't have got tricked by so many of these prosperity gospels or uh, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, all of these things that were, were just about puffing up the flesh and adding wealth and adding health. Look, God wants us to be healthy. God wants us to have blessing and even prosperity. But that's not the point of the gospel. That's a doctrine of dogs, and it's taken its toll on the body of Christ. That's a good place to clap, by the way, that we, we're, we're not in this for what we can get out of it. We're in this to give our lives to him who saved us from our sin, amen, out of thankful hearts. So beware of dogs. Number two, he says, beware of evil workers. Certainly false teachers and false prophets are evil workers, but let's not forget the tares that Jesus warned us would be in the kingdom until he separated the wheat from the tares. This is uncomfortable for us to think of, but... Many times, you know, we've been in churches where there were people in the church who were pretending they were saved, who were talking a good talk, who would carry a big fat Bible and show up and say amen in all the right places. But when we really got to know them, their hearts were, were not right because they were not connected to God through Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, I mean, if you've been around the block, you know, if you're if, if you if you've seen some stuff, if you've been a few places, if you've. It's a little unsettling. And, you know, when you walk away from getting burned by that, Lewis, it's like from that point on, we beware a little bit. We're a little wary of people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. And that's what Paul's saying, beware of evil workers. Why? Because there's going to be tares, not out in the world, but in the church. Tares among the wheat. Listen to Matthew, 12, uh, Matthew 13. 24 through 25, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. And what happened? The weeds, the tares grew up with the wheat. Those who were there with the wrong motives grew right up alongside those there with the right hearts. And, and Jesus didn't pluck them out. The, the, Jesus didn't just pull them right out. He let them grow and dealt with them at the end. An example of this would be the way that Jesus dealt with Judas. Jesus knew who Judas was. He knew what Judas's motivation was. He knew he was stealing from the money purse. He knew he didn't really believe in Jesus, and he was only there waiting for an opportunity to betray him to enrich himself. Yet Jesus let him be one of the 12. Jesus let him have the money purse. You ever think, like, some of the things Jesus does is like, why in the world would you do that? Because the wheat grows with the tares, and it was dealt with at the end of Jesus's ministry. And Judas made his choice. Understand, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, not everyone says that I'm a Christian, not everyone who sits next to you in the house of worship is a genuine believer and and follower of Jesus Christ. That there will always be those. So beware. Be on guard. Protect yourself. The last thing he says to beware of is the false circumcision. There were those that claimed chosen status. Understand, the circumcision, the the mark of circumcision was something God required of his people. In the Old Testament, only the Jews were circumcised. And what it was was this symbolic cutting away of the flesh that showed that they were a, a peculiar people, a people that belonged to God. It differentiated them from all the other people groups of the world. And now he says, within the New Testament church, within the body of Christ, you and I need to beware of the false circumcision, those who claim chosen status but are really not connected to God. They're just religious rule keepers that want to put rules on other people to elevate themselves above the masses. And he says, beware. Now understand something. There will always be those religious rule keepers who will attack the liberty that Jesus has given us. Jesus has given us liberty. Let me say it again. Jesus has given us liberty. Amen? We don't all have to look alike, talk alike, wear the same clothes, have the same haircut. Those are Mormons, amen? You ever see some of them people? They all look the same. They all dress the same. Their hair is cut above their, you know, above their brain stem, and they all look... That's not what the church looks like. Well, brother, you got to look like this. You got to dress like this. You got to like this kind of music. You got to shout like this. You got to say amen here. No, we have liberty in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if you look around this morning, (laughs) if you look around this morning, we're diverse. We're not all, you know, some, some look like this, some dress like that. And it's okay, amen. I'm thankful for diversity within the body of Christ. But we all have Christ in common, and that's important. These, you know, the false circumcision, we're like, no, we have rules. you got to do this. You can't do that. And, you know, this Greek word here for the false circumcision, that word circumcision is the Greek word katatome. And katatome 
Now, circumcision, we're going to talk about, it's the cutting away of the flesh. But katatome means mutilation. Those who rip and tear and cut away at the fabric of the true gospel, they mutilate, they katatome the gospel. They, they pervert it with fairy tales, with legalism, with rule keeping, and with outright lies. Now, I know, you know, it's really quiet. Like, you should see your faces out there. I should get one of those cameras so I could pan across. We got to hook that up. We got to get you on the big screen. If you could see what I see. Understand something. There are the faults out there. There are those who mutilate and rip and tear away at the truth. And they are going to be in the body because the tears are going to remain. But you and I need to be aware of them and then beware of them. Mm. Paul continues here in verse 3. He's talked about the false circumcision, but right away he shifts gears here. I love the way he does this. He says, uh, you know, though for it says here, beware of dogs and for evil workers and for the false circumcision. Now, verse 3, we are the true circumcision. Say true. We are the true circumcision who worship in spirit, in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's a beautiful verse. We're going we're gonna to unpack it in just a minute. But I want you to see, he just said false circumcision. Now he says true circumcision. And if you look at that in the Greek, the word for circumcision is a different word. It's not the false is katatome. It's to mutilate. But listen, this Greek word that, use here, that he uses here in the next verse is peritome. And that's a genuine cutting away of the flesh. And that's a good thing. You and I didn't get saved to remain sinful. You and I didn't get forgiven our sins and covered in the blood and filled with the Holy Spirit to remain in bondage. You and I have gotten saved so that we can cut away that old fleshly nature and let the Holy Spirit bring holiness and personal holiness and, and, and freedom to our lives. You should be a little bit more excited right now, amen? We're not made for bondage. We're not made for sin. It's not katatome that we mutilate the truth and make it fit our reality. No, it's peritome that we cut away the flesh. So Paul says we are the true peritome, those who have allowed the Holy Spirit to cut the flesh away. How, how many would say with an amen this morning that you are a lot different spiritually, morally, ethically, your worldview? Everything is different since you've come to Jesus Christ. Say amen. 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 That's the peritome. That's the cutting away of the flesh, the old nature. I used to support this, now I support that. I used to do this, and now I don't do that anymore. I, I do this. I used to be sinful, but now I, I want to be holy. Not that we're ever going to get it perfect, but the difference between a lost person and a saved person, a lost person gives himself over to sin. A saved person resists sin and wants nothing to do with it. That's the difference. That's the difference between mutilating the gospel to make it fit our, you know, worldview or allowing the Holy Spirit to cut things away. Now, look what Paul says in verse 3. There are three marks of true Christianity here, of genuine Christianity, and, and they're all packed into verse 3 here. It says, the true circumcision, here are the marks, who worship in the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's unpack those three things. Number one, the, the first mark of spiritual authenticity that we see by allowing our flesh to be cut away by the Holy Spirit is that in the way we worship God, we worship in the Spirit. 
What happened here this morning during our time of worship wasn't that we had a a song set and performed a concert and played some good music and we grooved along with it for Jesus. Well, that was really good. I really, you know, I started to just get my foot a little bit. No, this is not a performance. This is not, you know, a concert. This is worship. What's the difference? You know, a concert, a performance, all that stuff, that's just carnal. It's just physical. It's just, you know, it's, it's fleshly. And I'm not saying it's all bad. Music's a beautiful gift that God gave us, amen? But worship is different than a musical performance. Worship is a spiritual expression. God is looking for those who will worship what? In spirit and in truth, amen? First, let's talk about how we worship in truth. The only way you can worship God in truth is to have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't just be spiritual. You can't just be a seeker. You can't just be, you know, someone who pops around from here to here and say, you know, I have, you know, I'm spiritual and all this stuff. You can't connect with God by doing that. The only way we can connect with the Father is through Jesus Christ. When we come to him, he covers us with the blood, makes us acceptable to the Father, makes us part of the family of God, and then we can have a spirit-to-spirit connection with the Father in worship. That's why what's going on here when we're worshiping God, there's a transfer taking place. Every one of us that are connected to him are connecting with him, and he's transferring something to us. Download in progress. That's what's happening during worship, amen? That's why when you're done worshiping, you feel free. Your mind's clear. You feel lighter. Issues that bothered you on the way in the door, you can't even remember what they are anymore. That's why worship is so powerful. That's why we've got to connect. That's why it's got to be spirit. It's got to be truth, amen? (laughs) Out of a genuine relationship with Christ, we have a spirit-to-spirit connection with the Father, That don't happen with religion. That don't happen with philosophy. That don't happen with spirituality. So that's the first mark of genuine Christianity here, that we've had the flesh cut away. It's in the way we worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. Number two, they glory in Christ alone. I love this one here, amen? Because the minute, look, I was always in church. I was always religious, but I didn't get saved until I was 14 years old. And the minute I got saved, I knew from that second forward, every day of my life, without doubt, that Jesus is the only way to come to God, to be forgiven of sin, to be born again, to be redeemed, to be transformed. Jesus is the only way. And listen, every day of my life, with every breath that God's given me, I'm going to glory in the fact that it's Jesus and Jesus alone, amen, and I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and neither should you be, because the minute we get saved, we know nothing else has worked up to this point. Nothing else has freed me. Nothing else has delivered me. Nothing else has given me the peace that I have now. Come on, anyone saved this morning? Anyone got peace this morning? Anyone free this morning? It's all Jesus. He did that. He did that. He did that. (laughs) So we glory in Christ alone. You got a person who says they're a Christian and go, well, you know, all roads lead to God. And you can find God through this religion or this cult. or It's all part of the journey. That's not a saved person. You can't be saved and think that there's other ways. You can't be saved and think that Jesus is just a way. 
If you, if you haven't received the gospel, then you haven't believed the word of God and you haven't become born again because the minute you do, you know he's the only way and you'll glory in Christ alone. Amen. Number three, the third mark from verse three is they worship in spirit and truth. They glory in Christ alone. And listen to this. They have no confidence in the flesh. This is a beautiful thing here because there again, the minute we see that we're sinners and we need a savior, we know we can't save ourselves. And then we can come to the place where I don't have any confidence in the flesh, that I can do things, that my performance can somehow save me, that I can atone for my sin, that I can impress God with my good works and he'll let me into heaven. The Bible says none of that. The truth is that the moment we get saved, we realize that our flesh is intrinsically sinful and the only hope for it is to crucify it and to allow Jesus to save us from our sin and be the, the, the sacrifice for our sin. And then all of a sudden it's like, man, it's not me anymore. It's not my works anymore. Thank God for Jesus. And so an authentic believer, a real Christian, has no confidence in the flesh. If you're out there still trying to do it, still thinking you can do it, still thinking, you know, you have to do works and perform these things and your performance is somehow going to please God and that's going to save you, please stop. That's exhausting. Just rest in the arms of the Father because Jesus did it. When he hung on the cross and gave up the ghost and said, it is is finished. He wasn't kidding. It's finished. Let it be finished for you. Amen. Have no confidence in the flesh. You and I can't save ourselves. You and I can't change ourselves. How are your New Year's resolutions going? Anybody change themselves? You know, I'm going to lose 15 pounds and a month later, well, I have 25 pounds to go and, you know, I'm eating ice cream every day. I'm going to cut that down every other day. How does that go for you changing yourself? I mean, some people have more willpower than others, and God bless them. They're fun to watch because they, they, they take longer to wear themselves out. We're eating popcorn watching them. But having no confidence in the flesh is actually a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing. And I can think of no better example of it in our modern generation that I know of than what I saw in a testimony that was given about Billy Graham. Billy Graham's since gone on to be with the Lord. He's no longer with us. He's gone, he's gone on to be with the Lord and receive his reward. But there was a time where Billy was on, uh, he was sick. He was on what turned out to be his deathbed. And the, you know, the doctors came in and out and they're looking at him and they, they, they came out and, you know, they told family members what was going on. They went into Billy and they said, you know, this is you know, end-of-life care, this is kind of it, we're just waiting for it. And his response was not, hallelujah, I'm going home to get my reward. You know, think about it. If anybody, you know, like, if anybody could be excited about the prospect of meeting Jesus face-to-face -face and come in, you would think it would be Billy Graham. He put the gospel on national TV. He preached crusades. Thousands were saved by his ministry. He mainstreamed the gospel in America here in such a way so powerful that none of us can even dare to think we can compete to what he did. Yet here he is on his deathbed, and there's no excitement or reveling or cockiness. A family member reported that with tears rolling down his cheeks, Billy said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow. That's it right there. That's it right there. That's it 
right there, that we would have no confidence in our flesh, no matter what we did, how much we did it, how big it was, if we're a household name. Billy had the right heart, and that's why God could use him, because he understood he was a sinner that needed grace. He didn't storm his way into heaven and say, where's my parade? You know, where's the angels? Why aren't they singing, you know, songs for me? Why, why, why isn't when the saints go marching in playing? You know, Billy's here. Da, 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 da. Have mercy on me, sinner. That's it. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in achievements. No confidence in spiritual works. Worship in spirit and truth. Glory in Christ alone. And have no confidence in the flesh. Those are three marks of genuine Christianity. Peritome, the cutting away of the flesh. Now listen, the presence of these marks in us is a good test of our spiritual authenticity. The absence of these marks in us demand we take a hard look at our spiritual foundation to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Because if we still have confidence in our flesh, if we still are thinking there's other ways, if we still think we can own it by works, if we still think that, you know, worship is just spiritual exercise, there's something wrong with the foundation. Verses 4 through 6, Paul moves on from this idea of, you know, coming in by works, and he builds a case against it. Uh, he builds a case against those who would dare put any confidence in the flesh. Listen to 4 through 6. He says, although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. So Paul is saying, don't put confidence in the flesh, but in case you think you've accomplished enough to do it, you know, let me give you my spiritual resume here. Let me give you my spiritual pedigree and see if you, if you can outdo me because I don't have any confidence in the flesh. He says this, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, so keeping the Jewish law and tradition of the, of the nation of Israel, he's an Israelite, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Wow. Paul's spiritual resume, his religious pedigree, if you will, is very impressive. And if you don't realize it's impressive, let me dig through it a little bit and show you why it is. He, the first thing he says is circumcised on the eighth day. So he shows uh, all, from, the, from his birth, from the beginning, he kept the Jewish traditions and customs. And so even as a child, even as a, a, a newborn baby, he did the right things and had the right pedigree. He says, I'm an Israelite. The Israelites were God's chosen. They were the only people connected to God. I was a Benjamite from a tribe in Israel that was esteemed. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Listen to that. He's saying, look, I put the J in Jewish. If you open the encyclopedia and look up Jewish, there's going to be a picture of me, the Apostle Paul there. I was a Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews. I, as far as Jewish culture and custom and law and practice, I exemplified all of it. Woo! Paul is the man. And it almost sounds like he's glorying in the flesh. But watch what he's doing here. He says, uh, he says uh, I was a Pharisee. Now, when we hear about Pharisees, I've preached about the Pharisees. You've heard all kinds of sermons. Pharisees were legalistic, self-righteous. They looked down on everybody else. When we hear Pharisee, we're like, ooh, I don't want to be a Pharisee. 
Paul says, I was a Pharisee. But understand, in the religious community, the Pharisees were the Navy SEALs of Jewish people. They were the most hardcore, committed, high-speed, squared-away individuals. They knew the law. They knew the word. They kept it. They were ultra-disciplined. They were, I mean, they were just high-speed. And Paul's saying, you know, I was a Pharisee. I was top-tier, cream of the crop. And there's no one who is more disciplined or committed than I was. The Sadducees were a little less, and the, the, the lawyers and the scribes down the line. But Pharisees were top-tier. He said, as far as zeal, I persecuted the church. He said, I didn't just pay lip service. I didn't just have convictions. When I believed something was wrong, I got out there and I did something about it. Paul didn't realize that he was persecuting the truth. He thought at the time he was doing the right thing. But he didn't just talk about it. He got out and did something about it. So as far as zeal, I persecuted the church. I put action to my convictions. As far as legalistically keeping the law of Moses, found blameless. If Paul could say that in the community he lived in, they found him blameless, that's a big statement. Because the Pharisees were world champion, black belt level fault finders. If you did anything wrong, they would smell it, pick it up, point it out, and puff themselves up like you're you're a notch lower than me now. Anybody getting this? Anybody know people like that? Anybody like that? Raise your hand. I'll have the ushers take you out back. So Paul's given his religious pedigree here, and he's saying all this stuff. I kept the law. I was the Jew of Jews. I was high speed. I was committed. I I, I was putting my money where my mouth was. I did all this stuff. And in doing all that within my community, they found me faultless. Now, can any of us bring our life up with a balance sheet and come even close to what Paul is saying here? Not me. It's amazing what he accomplished in the flesh. But in verse 7 and 8, he's going to give his analysis of what all that is worth to him now, all his religious achievements. He says in verse 8, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as a loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them mere dung that I might obtain Christ. There's Paul's analysis of everything he accomplished in his spiritual pedigree. Now, I'm not sure, because we can't relate to what he really accomplished and none of us can put ourselves up to that level, I'm not sure we even understand the level of humility it takes or the mental transformation it would take for someone to make a statement like Paul just made. I've dedicated my whole life. I've been successful in every way. I'm without reproach. No one can criticize me. I'm top tier. But you know what? All of that means zero to me right now. It means nothing to me. Do you realize the transformation of mind that needs to take place to be able to even admit or confess that? So many in our culture, you know, when we come out of crazy lifestyles or debauchery or sin or just years of drug addiction, drunkenness, sexual immorality, so many people in our culture, especially the rich and famous, try to legitimize or romanticize the ugliness of their past. And I've heard people, you know, come out of these things and say, well, you know, I did this and blah, 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 but you know what? I don't have any regrets. 
For I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. It was part of my story. It was part of my journey. (laughs) Give me a blessed break. I mean, I don't know about you, but things that I've done in my past, I'm ashamed of. I'm embarrassed of. I'm not going to spin it and say it was part of my journey, part of my story. It was part of my rotten, fallen, sinful nature that Jesus had to save me from and redeem me from. Amen. Listen, the arrogance and the hubris it takes to say, I have no regrets. You've been married like eight times. You did this and that. I mean, I I regretted reading what you did. It's part of my journey, part of my story. That's not the Apostle Paul. Paul doesn't spin it. He doesn't romanticize it. He doesn't say it was part. No, he calls it for what it is. He says, it's lost to me. I count it as dung. It's worthless garbage, and, it, and I have no value for it. We've got to get this right here. Paul explains in verse 8 his thoughts on this. He, he's saying it's, it's lost. What, suffering loss you know, of his whole life, of his entire life's work, he was willing to say, that means nothing to me to gain Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with him. That's what we have got to get this morning. Nothing we want to do, nothing we want to accomplish, no accolades we could receive, no, you know, amount of financial success that we could ever achieve is going to be worth more to us in the final analysis than us having a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. So order your days wisely. Use your time wisely. How much time do we have left? Let's use it to do the things of God, to be about the Father's business. But Paul says, it's lost to me. It's dung to me. Uh, I, 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 I am ashamed of it. I do regret it. I, I was, you know, it's not part of my story, part of my journey. It's it's something that I draw a line on and I say, it's over for me. I, I'm, I'm not going to celebrate it or revel it or put it on my resume anymore. It's loss. Now, the loss of something, uh, anything in our life, really deals with our pride. How many like to lose? Oh, I like to play games, but I want to make sure I lose every time. Look, I've seen fistfights over Monopoly boards. A- any of you guys in that family? You know, People played a game of risk, and they haven't talked in 20 years. But people don't like to lose. Our pride doesn't like to lose. And so, you know, uh, to say this is all lost to me, that displays true spiritual maturity because he's reveling in what he lost so he could gain Christ. You know what makes loss better? When we lose something that's of less value than what we gain. You know, I lost a a 2000 Honda Civic and I got, you know, uh, I don't know, for me, it would be like some sort of truck. So, you know, you you, you trade up in your loss. You know, if you lose, (laughs) you lose a big house and now you're living in like, you know, a little apartment that, that that stinks. Right. But when we trade up in our loss, that takes the sting out of loss. There was an old Native American woman and she was driving a pickup truck down a dusty back road out west and she saw a young woman walking down the road holding a package and the the woman pulled over and picked up the young lady and she jumped into the truck with her package and thanked her for the ride and the native american woman said what is it that you are holding in your arms and the young lady said i got a bottle of wine for my husband and the native american woman lit up and she said you got a bottle of wine for your husband you made a good trade 
Now, ladies, don't trade in your husband. Could you imagine if you could return your husband? On, my wife brought me back to Walmart. They wouldn't take me. She didn't have a receipt. But when we trade up, it's a good thing. I want to tell you something in closing this down. You and I, of what we've lost, of what we accomplished, of what we spent our time and energy on before we came to Jesus, we have traded up. Amen? We lost our shame. We lost our sin. We lost our trouble, our problems, our fear, our doubt. And we traded up to being accepted, to being loved, to being redeemed, to being forgiven. That's what we've traded up to today. Amen? And it's a good trade. If you've given Jesus the lordship of your life, you made a good trade today. I close with this. What's it worth to us to have a real relationship with Jesus? Because there's a cost to it. For Paul, it was everything in his past, everything he ever accomplished, everything he ever did. He said, I'll trade it. It's a good trade. It's worthless to me. What are we willing to suffer for Jesus? What are we willing to lose for him? What are we willing to endure to gain him? What are we willing to do to please him, to know him, and to make him known? Whatever the cost is, May we have the heart of Paul and say, it's worthless to me. It's dung. It's a good trade, and I'm letting it go, and I'm not even sorry. Having Jesus is much better. Whatever the cost is, let's be willing to pay it this morning. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you this morning for this word and for Philippians and for the Apostle Paul. Lord God, giving us such a beautiful example of how to love and how to serve and how to be genuine and how to lay our lives down, how to count the costs, and how to exchange all the meaningless things of life that we've accomplished for the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would be willing to make that trade and never look back. From this moment forward, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give him praise this morning. Amen.